Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 51. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on December 17th, 2021, in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a robust rating in your podcast app of choice or writing a review on Apple. This is a labor of love and your feedback is very motivating. We are firmly back on the timeline after a couple of sidebars in the concluding episode on Novo Albion and Drake's legacy. Yes, that episode was, as some have pointed out, a bit esoteric. That will happen occasionally since, well, I am following my muse and occasionally my muse gets very esoteric. For those of you who have not heard it or bailed before the end, episode 50 told of historians doing bad things in the service of defending a particular narrative, a rather unethical version of weaponizing history. We discussed Melissa Darby's well-argued hypothesis that Herbert E. Bolton, chairman of the history department at the University of California at Berkeley, had been the instigator of one of history's great frauds, the faking of the plate of brass that Drake used to mark the location of Novo Albion somewhere on the Pacific coast of today's United States. Bolton's scheme to cement California's claim to Drake's fair and good bay. Along the way, we talked about one of Bolton's protégés, George P. Hammond, and Darby's discovery that he was probably the architect of another famous historical fraud, the so-called Dare Stone, supposedly carved by Virginia Dare's mother years after the disappearance of the Roanoke colony. Both Bolton and Hammond ended up as president of the American Historical Association back in the day, which is holding its 2022 annual meeting on January 6th to 9th in New Orleans. I will be attending that meeting. Actually, I'll be in New Orleans even if they cancel that meeting because of the COVID. So if you are going to be in the Crescent City during that stretch and want to get together, please get in touch via email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or via the contact page on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Now, just because Bolton and Hammond may have committed frauds does not mean that they weren't otherwise very accomplished historians. Both were among the most important scholars of the early American colonial Southwest, our topic for today. So it all ties together. Today's episode is The Rediscovery of New Mexico and the Last Conquistadors, 1580-1610. It is 1580, and virtually no Spaniards have traveled to New Mexico or the American Southwest since the return of the remnants of the Coronado and Soto expeditions in 1542. Neither had found a third great indigenous civilization a conquer, or even more than scant evidence of precious metals. By 1580, most of the survivors of those expeditions would have died, and the narratives and deposition transcripts produced in their aftermath would have been known to very few people, books still being rare and expensive, especially in the frontier precincts of Spanish America. 
The most durable legacy of those expeditions, at least in 1580 in New Spain, would have been the rumors of gold, which always persist long after the actual facts are gone from living memory. So it was that circa 1580, various entrepreneurial conquistadors, or more accurately, conquistador wannabes, set to scheming for a return to the region that some were now dreaming of as New Mexico. The Spanish had already cooked up the names for the eventual states of Florida, California, and Texas, and New Mexico would be the fourth, just a couple of years before Sir Walter Raleigh would name Virginia in honor of Elizabeth I. The Spanish probes into the American Southwest in the 1580s were minor affairs and of relatively little consequence, except insofar as they stirred up the Indians living in the pueblos of the region and generated a new round of propaganda that would lead to the colonization project of Don Juan de Iñate in 1598. Regarding these early missions, I'll read from the flaps of the dust jacket of the rediscovery of New Mexico, 1580 to 1594, by George P. Hammond, he of the Dare Stone, and Agapito Rey, which was published in 1966 by the University of New Mexico Press as part of a multi-volume work celebrating the 400th anniversary of the Coronado Expedition. I do not know whether Hammond or Ray wrote the material on the flaps, but they almost certainly approved it. Quote, Between the famous expeditions of Coronado and Oñate, five other lesser-known reconnaissances entered the American Southwest. But after the disheartening reports of the Coronado party 40 years earlier, what induced soldiers and Franciscan friars to prospect the rumors of a better people, a better land somewhere in the distant north? The reasons for the undertaking of each of these journeys were as various as the fates of each exploration. Here, in miniature, the readers provided with the entire spectrum of motives that impelled the Spanish to penetrate the vast reaches of an unknown land. The Chamuscador Rodriguez expedition departed for the northern frontier in 1581. It consisted of eight soldiers and two friars, and the purpose was to reconnoiter the area for possible mining ventures and to convert the Indians to Christianity. The expedition returned in 1582, but the two friars remained at Puere Pueblo to convert and instruct the Indians. They were martyred. 1582 saw the founding and departure of the Espeo expedition. Espeo, once wealthy, was a fugitive seeking refuge when the Chamascado Rodriguez expedition returned to northern Mexico. Hearing about the two friars, Espeo took his party of 14 soldiers and one priest north. They covered nearly the entire southwest, from Texas to the Hopi villages of Arizona. They confirmed the deaths of the two priors who had accompanied Chamascado and Rodriguez into the Pueblo country. Castaño de Sosa was the next to leave for the north. He uprooted his entire colony of 170 people and without authorization against specific orders to the contrary, embarked on a venture of colonization. Moilete, who had delivered the original orders forbidding Castaño to depart, set off in pursuit. 
Arriving at the Pueblo of Santo Domingo, Morlete embraced Castaño, read him the viceroy's orders, and promptly had Castaño put in chains. In no hurry to return, Marlette explored the territory for about 30 days with his shackled captive. On returning to Mexico, Castaño was found guilty of disobeying the orders of the viceroyalty. He was exiled to the Philippines and died at the hands of mutinous Chinese galley slaves. His name was cleared after his death. The last expedition was that of Leva and Humana. This was a punitive expedition to put down an Indian revolt in northern Mexico. But Leva decided to launch a full-scale invasion of New Mexico. When a disagreement arose between the two men, Umana called Leva to the camp and murdered him with a butcher knife, thereafter rallying the men around himself. This party journeyed to the Buffalo Plains, the same Quivera that Oñate later traveled to, believed to be located somewhere in southern Kansas. Back to me. These five explorations were not very important, except insofar as they led to Anyate's authorized colony, which is very important, because Anyate came to stay. He was, in effect, the real founder of Spanish New Mexico, and we will get to him shortly. There are, however, a few anecdotes from the first two that are fun and interesting, at least from the distance of more than 400 years. There's also important context. Since we last saw the Spaniards in the southwest, the kings of Spain, under the influence of leading religious orders and activists such as the friar Bartolomeu de las Casas, the famous protector of the Indians, had twice enacted new laws to ameliorate the treatment of the indigenous peoples in the Americas. Here's how Hammond described it. The new laws of 1542-43, the first great code for regulating the relations of Spanish conquerors with the Indians, had been only partially successful, and much disorder continued to prevail. Viceroys and audiences contracted with individuals to lead expeditions of conquest or permitted governors and adelantados great liberty in doing so, a policy that often led to extreme cruelty and oppression of the natives. Since it had proved impossible fully to implement the laws of 1542, the legislation of 1573 was enacted. This code was designed to overcome the deficiencies of the earlier regulations respecting exploration and settlement. No longer would conquests be permitted. In fact, use of that word was specifically forbidden. Discoveries were to be undertaken with peace and mercy, and there would be no excuse for any action that might injure the Indians. Viceroys and governors were still to be alert to new discoveries, to inform themselves fully about them, but they and their agents must use peaceful means in making such investigations. Close quote. The result was that by the 1580s, Spanish expeditions into North America were fundamentally demilitarized, in stark contrast to the Soto and Coronado Entradas 40 years before. Priests and friars were, in principle, to take the lead, and men-at-arms came along to protect them. The authorities in New Spain, essentially today's Mexico, were to undertake an inquiry into the character of the men authorized to lead such expeditions. And so they did. The first expedition, led by the Captain Francisco Sanchez Chamuscado, 
and the friar, Augustin Rodriguez, amounted to 29 or 30 people, two or three friars, eight soldiers, and 19 servants, with the usual air quotes. The scant accounts of the journey are apparently silent on whether the servants were in some condition of involuntary servitude. Some of them probably were. In any case, the group departed from central Mexico on June 5, 1581, and would reach the Pueblos of New Mexico in late August. There, according to Gallagos, the chronicler of the expedition, there was not a day when we were not surrounded and accompanied by more than 12,000 people. Whether or not Gallagos was rounding up, it's hard to believe that his crowd estimation capabilities were better than, say, those of average police departments that estimate the size of demonstrations. But they may not have been worse, either. The Pueblos of New Mexico were populous places in those days, and Chamascado and Rodriguez would have been wildly outnumbered and therefore careful to maintain good relations. They would spend the next months exploring the region, centering near the location of today's Santa Fe, and getting as far as the Canadian River in northeastern New Mexico or the Oklahoma Panhandle. On the plains of eastern New Mexico, they saw vast herds of buffaloes, a shocking sight, even if they'd heard stories of them from the Coronado years. By the end of January 1582, the party, minus two friars who stayed behind to evangelize to the Indians, returned to Mexico. Chamascado fell ill along the way and died. The Chamascado expedition would lead rather inadvertently to that of Antonio de Espeo later that year. Espeo had come to the New World in 1571, seeking his fortune, and he had quickly become a successful rancher along the northernmost reaches of Spanish settlement in Mexico, by then on the frontier of today's Chihuahua State, roughly at the latitude of Corpus Christi, Texas. He had grown wealthy, but in 1581 had gotten into a dispute that ended with Espeo and his brother killing a man. They were tried in Mexico City and convicted, with the brother Pedro receiving an unspecified heavy punishment for actually doing the deed. Antonio the accomplice got away with only a large fine, but rather than pay it, he fled back to Chihuahua, arriving just as the Chamascado party returned in April 1582. Here was an opportunity. Hearing that Two friars had stayed behind in New Mexico. Antonio sought the approval of the local Franciscans to lead a party to rescue them. Espeo's hope was that he could redeem himself by rescuing the friars and making important discoveries. The Franciscans, not knowing Espeo was in flight from the authorities in Mexico City, authorized the mission and lent support. Espeo put up much of the expense and supplied horses, and on November 10, 1582, the party of 14 soldiers, one priest, perhaps 25 servants, there were always servants, and usually they were lost to history, and 115 horses and mules headed north to New Mexico. Espeo's group would cross into today's United States near El Paso and proceed north through the Pueblo country again to Santa Fe. Along the way, they would first hear that the two friars who had stayed behind were still alive, and then that they had been killed. 
Still hoping for the glory that would redeem his reputation, Espeo would explore west into Arizona before swinging back to the east along the Picos River and then south to the Rio Grande. We have a fair amount of detail around Espeo's march, consolidated in a 25-page article by J. Lloyd Meacham in the Southwestern Historical Quarterly in October 1926. No worries, we're not going to go very deep on Espeo here, but if you lose your mind and want to do, I'll put a link in the show notes, which will be useful only if you have access to JSTOR, which if you are listening to this podcast, you might already have or want. The expedition reached the Rio Grande on December 9th, 1582, where they paused a bit south of El Paso for eight days. During that time, Espeo dispatched a small group downstream a short distance where they encountered villages of a tribe known to the Spanish as the Abriadras. There they heard stories of Cabeza de Vaca and his three companions having passed through, at that point more than 45 years in the past. A few days later, the expedition resumed its slow march up the Rio Grande into New Mexico, reaching the first inhabited Pueblos on February 1st, 1583. A few days later, they reached the Pueblo of Purare, where they learned to their satisfaction that the two friars they were sent to rescue had already died. But they also heard Indian tales of greater and richer provinces farther on to the west. So to the west they went. Like the various Indians who told tall tales to keep Narvice and Soto moving through Florida, and the Turk who led Coronado astray, these Indians probably just wanted the Spanish to stay on their wild goose chase, which they did. Espeo and his men came to the Jemez Valley west of Santa Fe, where they saw the vast pueblos there, including Chia, which they described as having a thousand houses, eight plazas, and a male population of 4,000. From there, they moved south by southwest to the Pueblo on Acoma Mesa, which Coronado had seen 40 years before. Espeo described it as having 700 houses and 6,000 inhabitants, probably an overestimate. From there, they proceeded west, perhaps 75 miles, to the Zuni Pueblos, where Coronado also had been, arriving there on March 14th. They estimated the aggregate population of this group of settlements at 20,000 people, and during the course of a month, discovered both crosses erected by Coronado and a couple of Indians who had traveled with him. They suggested that Espeo keep moving west, where he would find still more riches. Move along, please. This he did until May, reaching the area of Winslow, Arizona, and encountering Hopis, far richer in spirit than in precious metals. Eventually, Espeo made it as far west as Jerome, Arizona, which is more than halfway across that big state, before turning around in late May. At some point in June, Espeo returned to the Pueblos along the Rio Grande to find them much less welcoming. One of the friars who had been left behind in New Mexico had induced a couple of presumably converted Indians to return to Mexico with him. 
The Indians from the fortified Pueblo at Acoma attacked them, perhaps as deserters, and a small band of Spanish retaliated by burning their fields. This would echo years later. When they reached Pure, the same Pueblo that had martyred the two friars who stayed behind when the Chamuscato expedition had evacuated the previous year, the Indians were on the rooftops jeering and deriding them, which is often the prelude to attack. One of the chroniclers described what happened next, quote, Seeing that if we did not punish them somewhat, they would become insolent and try to kill us, since the Puebla was large and most of the people were hidden inside, we set fire to the great Puebla of Puele, and we knew from the cries which were being emitted from some of them that they were being burned alive. Then immediately after, we took the prisoners by twos and tying them to some poplar trees near the Pueblo, they were given a flogging, and some of them were so severely punished that they died. They were estimated to be 16, besides those that were burned. This does not seem to be consistent with the royal laws that called for peaceful coexistence with the Indians, but unfortunately, the violence did work. As word spread of the massacre at Pule, the Indians acceded to any request the Spanish made of them. After roughly nine months of knocking around New Mexico and Arizona, Speo's party would pass through West Texas, probably in the vicinity of today's Fort Davis and Marfa. Sadly, history does not record whether he saw the famous Marfa Lights or that Prada store. Espeo would return to Spanish territory on the Chihuahua frontier on September 10th, 1583, which super attentive listeners will remember as one day after Sir Humphrey Gilbert went down with a squirrel and a storm off the Azores, leaving his half-brother Sir Walter Raleigh Elizabeth's license to settle the Atlantic coast of North America for England. Espeo, who was, we should remember, seeking redemption, delivered an optimistic account of his discoveries to the north, including of the gentle Pueblo Indians and their robust agriculture and hints of precious metal to the west, as it happened so many times in the past, glowing reports founded on wishful thinking would reverberate through Mexico City's taverns and Imperial Spain's bureaucratic nobility. They had become convinced, in Hammond's words, not only of the desirability of establishing a Spanish society among them, but of the opportunity for saving thousands of souls from damnation, and at the same time of finding riches for prospective settlers and encomiendas, mines, and ranches. All of this good news eventually led Philip II, King of Spain, to instruct the Viceroy of Mexico to identify some suitable person for the discovery of new lands in accordance with the law. Eventually, after much grinding of the ministerial gears, the patent would go to Don Juan de Añate who in 1598 would found Spanish society in New Mexico. With Añate, the Spanish would finally come to stay. Now the year is 1598, a new high-water mark for the podcast, to mix a metaphor. The Anglo-Spanish War is still on, but it is waning. Francis Drake and John Hawkins, see, I couldn't fail to mention them, have been dead for three years. Philip II will die on September 13, 
this year. His son, Philip III, will continue the war, but with nothing like his father's zeal. In France, the enlightened and fascinating King Henry IV will enact the Edict of Nantes, giving the Huguenots equal rights with Catholics and ending the decades-long French wars of religion. In Henry's circles, there's a brilliant young man named Samuel de Champlain, who will leave this year on a Spanish vessel for the first of perhaps 29 Atlantic crossings over the course of his life, a remarkable record of luck and survival. In just 10 years, before Oñate would return to New Spain, Champlain would found Quebec City, discover Lake Champlain, and get off his boat on the shore in Vermont. That is definitely a teaser for you, our loyal listeners, and also a reminder that after 1600, vast early America gets a lot more complicated. Juan de Añate Salazar was born in New Spain in 1550. He was the son of Cristobal de Añate, a Spanish Basque conquistador and silver baron in the region. Juan's mother, Doña Catalina Salazar y de la Cadena, sorry about the Spanish pronunciation there, I'm doing my best here, was descended along several lines from conversos, Jewish Spaniards who had converted to Christianity to escape the pressure from the zealous Catholicism that animated Christian Spain in the late Middle Ages. One would marry Isabel de Tolosa Cortez de Moctezuma, the granddaughter of Hernán Cortez, conqueror of the Aztecs, and the great-granddaughter of Aztec Emperor Moctezuma. By 1592, when the crown was assessing candidates, Don Juan de Añate had almost everything he might want, from property to social standing to a beautiful wife to a young son who would carry his name into the future. But he did not have, in the words of Stan Hoig, that very special, exalted stature that came with being a renowned Spanish conquistador. Then his wife died suddenly. Thus wrote Hoig when the opportunity to lead a new colonizing entrada into Nuevo Mexico arose, and with it the potential reward of becoming the adelantado of a new Spanish province, Don Juan leaped at the opportunity. Added to this was the prospect of making a grand discovery equal to that of his dead wife's legendary grandfather. So it was that on September 21st, 1595, Añate signed a contract with the Viceroy of Mexico to organize a colonizing venture north of the Rio Grande. It took three years to recruit the men and run through the now considerable bureaucratic requirements of such a venture. Though historians have perseverated over the process of organizing the expedition, I'll spare you the many ins and outs and what have yous. Because of all the inspections and documentation now required, in no small part because of the Crown's fairly new interest in protecting the Indians from far across the ocean sea, we have a detailed accounting of all the material and animals hauled along by the six or seven hundred colonists that would set off for New Mexico in late winter 1598. Añate's personal contribution, which was probably the majority of the supplies, included 4,632 horseshoes, 137,338 horseshoe nails, 
1,012 goats, 4,439 sheep and rams, nearly 1,900 head of cattle, 20 barrels of mercury, presumably for metallurgy and scarily toxic medicines, 154 cults and 30 mules and donkeys, among other things. And no, I have no clue why they counted horseshoe nails down to the last nail, but we are left with nearly 1,900 head of cattle. Large as it was, Anyate's Entrada was much smaller than Coronado's, which numbered over 2,000, at least half of which were allied Mexican-Indian fighting men. Not only was Team Anyate relatively small, but it was entirely different in kind. John Kessel, the modern historian who wrote several books on early New Mexico in the last 20 years or so, says that in contrast to Coronado's militarized operation, these were fundamentally migrant families, counting among them wives, children, servants, and slaves, most of them young and in their 20s and many with children. They brought along more than 80 wagons loaded with the materials needed to settle down, including building materials, mining apparatus, rootstock, seed, and all that livestock. About half of these families had come from Spain, and the other half were themselves natural-born Americans in the broader sense, coming from the Indies and New Spain. Some, like Oñate, were descended from both Spaniards and Indians, and there were some number of Africans or the descendants of Africans. In addition to Oñate, the important figures along included Captain Gaspar Perez de Viagra, who would go on to write an epic poem of just under 12,000 lines recounting the expedition, which he would publish as his Historia de la Nueva Mexico in 1610. The expedition crossed the Rio Grande southeast of El Paso on April 20th, 1598. As attentive listeners will remember from our Thanksgiving special, the people and the livestock were acutely thirsty and probably only a few days from starting to die. They plunged into the Rio Grande and drank as if they had just trekked across a vast desert, which they had. And then they had a day of Thanksgiving, inviting local friendly Indians who had brought birds and fish to a big feast. This is the basis of the fairly hilarious claim of Texas to the first Thanksgiving on American soil, in case you missed it a few weeks back. By the summer of 1598, the group had reached the Pueblo country of New Mexico and moved into the Pueblo known to the locals then, and now again today, as O.K. Awinga, which is about 25 miles north of Santa Fe. And by the way, apologies to any of the current residents of that community if I've mangled the pronunciation of its name. The settlers moved in among the Indians, who allegedly welcomed them. More likely they were afraid because they remembered how dangerous the Spanish could be after Espeo's retribution 16 years earlier. Añate named the town San Juan Batista after his patron saint, and by September 8, 1598, had dedicated the first permanent Spanish building in New Mexico, a small Catholic church. Okay, Owingo would be the first capital of Oñate's colonial New Mexico, and Oñate would use the Pueblo as the base of his activities until some point in 1600. 
when he would move his capital just across the Rio Grande to the west to a pueblo he called San Gabriel, the precise location of which has not been found. Indeed, in 1600, 108 years after Columbus's first voyage and 74 years after Lucas Vasquez de Ayon's failed settlement of San Miguel de Gualdape on the coast of South Carolina, there would still be only two permanent European settlements then surviving in today's United States, St. Augustine in Florida and Aonate's outpost at Okeawinga. Now it would be possible to do a long podcast series on Oñate's time in New Mexico, which would last for 12 years to 1610. That, however, would be tedious even for me, and I like moving slowly through mountains of detail as much as the next guy. Instead, so you have the big picture, I'll hit the high points in the historical record, which has several multi-year gaps anyway, and then drill in on a particular episode that's famous because of its extreme brutality and long-term consequences. As early as 1599, at least some of the colonists decided they had been sold a bill of goods. New Mexico is freezing cold for much of the year and burning hot in the summer, with far greater extremes than either Spain or Mexico. Periodically, a group of them would leave, which Oñate regarded as nothing less than desertion and carrying the penalty of death. His brutal reprisals against his own defecting settlers would set the tone for years to come and form part of the basis for my assertion in the Thanksgiving episode that Oñate was a dirtbag. Not surprisingly, Oñate did not limit his punitive measures to Spaniards, in 1599, he brutally conquered the Indians on the Acoma Mesa. In 1602, he fought resisting Indians on the High Plains. And in 1603, he launched a punitive raid on the Pueblo at Taos. We'll swing back to the massacre at Acoma for a more detailed look in a moment. Unlike Coronado or any of the exploring captains of the 1580s, including Chamascado and Espeo, Añate was a true settler colonialist. He was governor of New Mexico and spent years trying to build up Spanish society there. Along the way, however, he would venture forth at least three times in search of the vast fortune that would redeem his massive investment of money and honor. In 1599, he led an expedition to the West searching for precious metals. In 1601, following the direction of an Indian guide who had encountered the Leva Umana expedition years before, Añate went in search of Coronado's Cuvera, exploring through the Texas and Oklahoma panhandles into Kansas. Finally, in 1604, now six years after establishing his colony, Añate would explore west in search of the South Sea, reaching the Gulf of California in 1605. Every time Oñate would take off to explore, some of the exhausted colonists would desert. Complaints about his administration, which was, shall we say, not benign, built up until January 1606, when the Council of the Indies in Seville recommended that he be recalled. The gears of the Spanish bureaucratic machinery turned slowly again, however, and it wasn't until June 17, 1606, that Philip III ordered the tactful removal of Oñate. 
Of course, notaries had to do their notary thing and the order had to go on some ship and some fleet to Veracruz and then make its way to Mexico City and then be schlepped 1,500 miles over mostly difficult roads and trails to San Gabriel, New Mexico. On August 24, 1607, when Oñate penned his letter of resignation, he'd still not learned that he'd been fired. In fact, much as he wanted to do, Oñate could not just return to Mexico. Spain had decided that it could not abandon New Mexico, in no small part because of the many hundreds of Indians who had been converted to Christianity, and now would be condemned to hell fires if they did not live out their lives under the guidance of the church. The Viceroy of Mexico ordered Oñate to stay on location until he had been relieved and further passed along the king's directive to establish a new settlement with, quote, order and decency for the long term. Oñate and his successor located that settlement at Santa Fe in 1610. It would become the oldest city that is now a state capital in the United States. In the spring of 1610, Oñate and his son would return to Mexico, no longer rich, no longer ambitious. He had been, if anyone was, the last conquistador. Now let's go back and look at the most notable episode of the Oñate years, the massacre at Acoma. In October 1598, having got the settlers working away at O.K. Owinja, Oñate would set off on his first exploration of the region with 34 mounted soldiers and Fray Martinez, telling his deputy Juan de Salvador to follow along subsequently with an additional 30 men. Oñate headed south along the Rio Grande and then swung west, following roughly the route of Espeo years before, apparently in search of the South Sea, the Strait of Anyan, and evidence of precious metal. On October 27th, the group reached the Mesa Pueblo of Acoma and there addressed the Indians in a ceremony of obedience and vassalage, told them he had come to bring them knowledge of God and was now their lord. The Indians of Acoma seemed to the Spanish to acknowledge all of this and even be receptive to it. So in Iñate's mind, they had now submitted to Spanish law. With those new citizens to consider, Oñate and his men pushed west to the Zuni Pueblos that Espeo and Coronado had respectively visited 16 and 58 years before. There he also saw some of Coronado's crosses still standing. By the end of November, Zalvador was heading west to find Oñate and link up to look for the South Sea. On December 1st, 1598, he too stopped at Acoma, intending to trade for provisions. Now let's turn to John Kessel's account in his book, Pueblos, Spaniards, and the Kingdom of New Mexico. Quote, Zalvador stopped at Acoma to extract provisions in exchange for iron hatchets and other trade goods. When the Indians delayed bringing down the ground corn, he and a number of men climbed up the trail to the Mesa Top Pueblo. They probably strode about arrogantly, demanding too much, or perhaps the attack, as survivors swore later, had been planned in advance. Whatever the circumstances, the Acomas invited the Spanish to various homes, divided them into small groups. Then, armed with bows and arrows, clubs and rocks, they fell upon them in a fury. One Spanish survivor recalled Acomas cursing them in the Aztec language, Nahuatl, 
a distant echo of the Mexican Indians who had deserted the Coronado expedition a lifetime earlier. Depositions taken later from the survivors lend credence to Viagra's blood and gut secondhand account. Salvador, ten other officers and men and two servants fell under the Acoma's blows. One Spaniard was, his ribs smashed, sprawled on the ground in the poet's words. When the topmost of a house, from on its parapet, a mighty rock was by a weak old woman thrust. This fell down straight in such a way as smashed his head to pieces. Five Spaniards jumped. Falling hundreds of feet, four landed in sand blown up against the base of the rock and lived. The fifth, his flustered brains knocked out among the rocks, came down losing both eyes. Close quote. A messenger chased down Anyate to the west and reported the attack. So he and his men hastened back to O.K. Awinja. Anyate faced the first real challenge to his rule. As Kessel put it, tens of thousands of Pueblo Indians watched. Unless the Acomas were swiftly and overwhelmingly punished, the Spaniards' rule was a farce. Even the Franciscan priests concurred, deeming retaliation just war to preserve the peace, and presumably their own skins. It should also be said that there were almost certainly Pueblo Indians who wanted the Acomas humbled. The Acomas had made it their business to make trouble for the settled Indians along the river, ranging out of their fortified mesa to rob and harass the Pueblo Indians with impunity. If the agrarian Indians along the river had to live with the Spanish, at least they could get some protection out of it. Sorry, it's quite early in the morning here and I still have a little frog in my throat. Oñate tapped Vicente de Salvador, brother of the now-dead Juan de Salvador, to humble the Acomas. Vicente devised a frankly brilliant plan. Now let's turn to Stan Hoig's harrowing description of the fight from his book, Came Men on Horses. Link in the show notes, and so on and so forth. When they arrived at Acoma, the Spaniards found that in front of them rose challenging rock cliffs, rimmed at the top by hundreds of clamoring natives who shouted angry defiance of, and disdain for, Vicente's small force. At this place of battle, both sides knew that the Spaniards' horses would not provide the great tactical advantage they offered in the open field. The challenge that lay before Vicente, scaling the vertical cliffs of the towering rock plateau and conquering the rebellious natives who resided atop it, appeared to be a virtually impossible assignment. Surprisingly, Vicente would prove equal to the daunting task assigned to him. As the Spanish force rode closer to the base of the rock fortress, he was greeted from the heights by a shower of arrows and rocks, accompanied by derisive taunts from Acoma warriors who, wearing coats of mail and flaunting weapons taken in their recent attack, jeered them as scoundrels and whoremongers. Viagra told of long-haired defenders who swarmed the precipice, some wearing colorful blankets, others dressed in skins and wearing masks. Many were naked, 
among them women warriors with their bodies painted with black, red, and white stripes. That actually might be distracting. Remember that this is January in New Mexico in the middle of the Little Ice Age. There were heaps of snow everywhere, or certainly had been a few days before. The Acomas must have been tough as nails. Back to Hoig. Vicente circled the rock plateau with his horsemen three times, formulating a plan of attack and looking for the most advantageous place to make an ascent. The Acomas, confident of the impregnability of their position, scornfully rejected Vicente's perfunctory suggestion that they surrender peacefully. With the sun ready to disappear below the western horizon, Vicente withdrew a short distance and went into camp. That night, he laid his plan of attack before his men. The giant 70-acre, 367-foot-high sandstone mesa was split almost at the center by a fissure that divided it into two parts, with the Acoma Pueblo occupying its southwestern half. Realizing the futility of a frontal assault up the steep face of the mesa, Vicente devised a plan whereby his main force would feign an attack at the principal entrance to the village. As the Acoma defenders were drawn to that place, he and a small group of his men would scale the plateau at a secluded crevice on the opposite northeastern side. Before dawn, Vicente led the eleven chosen men to a hiding place at the backside of the mesa from which they could scale the rock walls. At the first light of day, the main army broke camp and made a trumpet-blaring approach to the entrance. The ruse was successful, drawing the horde of Acoma warriors to the entrance while Vicente's party worked their way unobserved to the top. They handed their weapons up to those above as they moved from one holding point to another. The twelve men managed to reach the top of the mesa before they were discovered. The Acomans spied them and then rushed forward, shouting battle war cries. The Indians leaped the narrow but deep chasm that split the huge rock and fierce hand-to-hand combat followed. The Indians held the advantage of numbers, but the Spanish swords, knives, harquebuses, and armor were too much to overcome. Vicente and his men were able to hold their position as more troops climbed up to join the fight. A large timber was hauled up the cliff and used by some of the Spaniards to cross the chasm. Thinking they would need it, Farther on, they took the timber up behind them, but they were soon attacked by a large number of warriors with spiked clubs. The seldom modest Viagra later described how he rushed forward, leaped across the crevice, and replaced the timber, permitting the remaining Spaniards to join their comrades. Two cannons were hauled up the rock by rope. Once put into action, these weapons wreaked death upon the Acomans, and by the third day of fighting so overwhelmed the Indians that the sword-wielding Spanish soldiers were able to slash and slaughter them unmercifully. Many of the natives fought to the death, but others yielded and came forward to make peace offerings of blankets and fowl to the Spaniards. Vicente rejected the overtures. He ordered that the Indians be arrested and imprisoned in the rooms of the Pueblo. Close quote. Then Vicente set the houses on fire, killing hundreds more Indians. Others were stabbed and thrown over the edge of the mesa. In the end, the Spanish destroyed the houses and the food supplies and took more than 500 captives. The Spanish 
marched the prisoners to the Rio Grande and then north to a Pueblo the Spanish had named Santo Domingo, where they were locked up. Oñate arrived there in February 1599 to preside over a trial of the prisoners. He appointed Captain Alonzo Gomez to serve as defense attorney for the Indians, and Gomez actually took the job seriously, arguing that many of the defendants had not been present at the attack on Juan de Salvador, and in any case, they did not understand Spanish law. Nevertheless, Oñate convicted them and handed out a sentence that raised eyebrows even in Mexico City once word got back. Quoting Kessel again, A coma men who appeared older than 25, the full legal age under Spanish law, would have one foot severed and then be bound to 20 years of personal servitude. Males 12 through 24 and females over 12 would serve without mutilation for 20 years. Two Hopi men who allegedly had fought alongside of the Akomas would lose their right hand and be freed to convey this message to their people. Akoma children under 12, the governor declared innocent of their parents' crimes. The girls he entrusted to Friar Alonzo Martinez, the Franciscan superior. Years later, Captain Viagra testified that he had accompanied 60 to 70 of these girls to Mexico City where they were distributed among convents. The governor put the boys in Vicente de Salvador's charge, and finally the old and infirm he sent to other pueblos with orders to care for them, but not to let them go, close quote. Several things might be said of all of this. One-footed slaves would not have been very useful and would have eaten up a lot of precious food. The evidence that the Spanish actually went through with the mutilations is scant, and some historians have suggested that they might have lopped off toes to slow them down, but left them with the main part of their foot so they could do useful work. Regardless, various of the Spanish along with Iñate were shocked by the sentence, and he would face investigations into this episode for years to come. The massacre at Acoma was at least part of the reason— that the Council of the Indies would recommend Oñate's removal in the spring of 1606. At the same time, the victory at Acoma settled the region down for the better part of 80 years, and the Spanish and the Pueblo Indians would, in general, live in something approximating peace until the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. I'll close with an interesting passage from Kessel's book, which puts the next 80 years into perhaps useful if not entirely satisfying context. Quote, During the 17th century, as Pueblo Indians and Spaniards contended and compromised in a marginal environment, Spanish colonialism did not produce unrelieved tragedy. Abuses occurred, to be sure, from rapes, murders, and dispossessions to minor swindles. And because Spaniards rule, they were more likely to go unpunished. Pueblo Indians, for their part, killed Spaniards, among them armed missionaries, women, and children, in addition to contriving more subtle ways of obstructing the colonial regime, misinterpreting their missionaries' words, absenteeism, foot-dragging, idols behind altars, or parody of notable Spaniards. Most days, however, the sun rose and set on face-to-face -face cooperation for economic gain, advantage in war, and even marriage or foot races. 
No one intended the devastation wrought by alien disease. Yet Spaniards and their livestock, coughing, spitting, and expelling bodily matter, no masks back then, became vectors. Smallpox, measles, typhus, and influenza struck periodically, slashing the Pueblo population by 80 to 90% from the late 16th to the mid-18th century. Native peoples who had withstood violence, cultural collapse, and regeneration before contact with Europeans often moved about in search of favored niches in their arid surroundings, now found themselves pinned down. The essential trade-off was a more reliable and varied food supply. Domestic animals and new crops, along with the Spaniards' suite of metal tools and agricultural techniques, proved, for the most part, beneficial. Unfortunately, no one cared to record the ordinary days when Pueblo and Spaniards laughed together, repaired a fallen wall, watered the sheep, or prepared for a buffalo hunt. While such mundane happenings went largely unnoticed, accounts of conflict, crime, and punishment filled the archives. At the same time, some Pueblo Indians, despite reduced numbers and mobility, sought to assimilate Spaniards, as previous generations had done with other wandering peoples who possessed useful tools or knowledge. And more than a few Spanish colonists mixed ungrudgingly with their Pueblo neighbors. Countless times during the century, Spaniards and Pueblos campaigned shoulder to shoulder against the common enemies of the kingdom, sharing the risks and spoils of war. Pueblos and Spaniards engaged in violence against each other only in exceptional cases. In contrast to the notoriety of such cases, much of life in the formative 17th century moved more quietly toward coexistence, setting precedents for the well-known accommodations of later centuries. Close quote. This episode being a little long in the tooth, this is a great place to stop right now. We have reached a new high watermark in the timeline, 1610. With the founding of Santa Fe and Don Juan de Anate's return to Mexico and eventually Spain. In upcoming episodes, our attention will turn back to the Atlantic coast, where on the same day in May 1607, the Protestant English, now at peace with Spain, would establish two colonies on the Atlantic coast, one at Jamestown and the other, which you probably have not heard about, in Maine. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging, so please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>